Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that and meet me over in Hebrews chapter 10. If you're thinking, whoa, I thought we are supposed to be in the book of Acts. Good question. We're going to pause on our Acts series for a couple weeks, and we're going to do a short series called Forward, where we're going to look at what are some of the things that we believe as an elder team God is calling us to do in the next season of our church. So the book of Hebrews is at the back of your Bible. It's uh, if you go to Revelation and go backwards a couple books, you'll find it, Hebrews chapter 10. As you're getting there, let me just ask you a quick question. How heavy do you think this glass of water is? This is participation time. Anybody? Three pounds. Really? That's the heaviest glass of water? My goodness. All right, hey, listen, there can not be a bad answer anymore because you've already got your bad answer. So now, anybody else? How heavy? How heavy? 10 ounces. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Here, here's the deal. It's not that heavy, is it? Like you can walk around. My, my one-year-old can probably grab this glass of water. But like Gene said, it depends on how long you hold it. If I ask Andrew to come up here on stage and hold this glass of water like this for the next 30 to 40 minutes, it gets pretty heavy, doesn't it? If I ask you to hold it for the next week or two, it becomes impossible to hold. And the reality is that that's most things in life. Honestly, life is not that heavy for short periods of time. You can grind it out pretty easily for a day, right? You can pull all-nighters. You can push as hard as you need to for just a short period of time. You can carry the weightiness of that for a little bit. You can carry the weightiness of feeling insignificant in this life for a day or two. But how about going over that for years? You see, life starts to get pretty heavy when you carry things on your own for a long time. Here's what I know to be true. All of us, all of us need each other. We, we live in this terribly individualistic world that tells you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which by the way is impossible, and live this life on your own and live your best life now and you'll be fine. And the reality is, is that works for a little while, but at some point, at some point the burden begins to become heavy. So here's what we do. We refuse the meal because we'll say things like, I don't want to burden you, right? Well, well, I can just do it on my own because it's easier to do it that way. And that, let me just tell you, that's pretty light for a while. But the more you try to live on your own and the longer you try to do that, the heavier it becomes. It becomes compounding interest on your life. Here's the big idea for the Christian life. You can write this down. It's this, living together creates a lighter life. It's really that simple. You were created for community. And I wanna show you a couple principles today that will help you to live a more free, enjoyable, and lighter life. It comes out of Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what he says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's pause there for just a second. You're jumping into the middle of a story. And when you're jumping into the middle of a story, you, you really need some context because this is the conclusion that therefore is the conclusion of a pretty long 
argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. Here's what he's doing is he's creating a juxtaposition between the Old Covenant, if you want to use easier words, the Old Testament system to where they, the high priest would have to go into this temple once a year into this holy of holies that was separated by a curtain that you didn't, you didn't get to go in. It was, it was so significant that they would actually tie a rope around the high priest so that when he went in, if they didn't hear the bells jingling anymore, they knew he was dead so they could pull him out. Like they didn't want to go in. And he would go in once a year to the holiest place behind the curtain and he would sacrifice an animal so that the blood of that animal could pour over this thing called the mercy seat and atone for or make right for your sins. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the blood of an animal and the blood of a human are not the same thing. So what he is telling you through this whole argument is the sacrifice of an animal once a year wasn't going to be good enough. It was an archetype or a picture of something to come. What was that thing to come? Well, his name was Jesus, that we would call the Lamb of God because he was the picture of the Lamb that was slain. So this Jesus would go into the temple, if you will. John 1 tells you that temple is his body, that he would put on flesh, become a human being, and dwell among us, become the temple, so that by his perfect life, he could actually become the perfect sacrifice. And him, sacrificing himself, would make a way so that you and I could have confidence, there it is in the text, to enter into the holiest places, which is behind that curtain. The curtain was to separate you from God. Because if you ever came into God's presence, remember Moses back in the Old Testament, God, show me your glory. God's like, you better hide because even coming into my presence is going to make you not come out of it. He's so holy and you are so not that you couldn't come into his presence. So what happened? So Jesus put on flesh, lived your perfect life, died your death, went into the presence of God, carrying your sin on himself, sacrificed himself so that now the curtain is torn, if you will, symbolically, the separation between you and God is no longer there and you can actually come into the direct presence of the God of the universe because Jesus Christ himself stood in your place. So now for all of eternity, when God sees you, he sees Christ's righteousness in you, and you're a new creation. That's what's going on here. Why do you have confidence? You have confidence because what he did. When you pray, you can talk to God. God accepts you, and he receives you as a son or a daughter of the king, adopted into his kingdom, and all of that guilt and shame is paid for. You see, that's where your confidence comes from. What does that make you do? It makes you never worry again. Think about it. If God is good and he's already punished evil, he can't punish you if you've received the gift righteousness of Jesus. So God accepts you. And that changes everything. Think about that new identity that you have in Christ. For the rest of eternity, God can look at you and what he can do is he can give you his name and call you by the name of Jesus and he accepts you because he's already paid the penalty for your sins. That's the context so check out the verse again, verse 20. By a new and living way. By the way, if you underline or circle words in your Bible, that is beautiful. It's new and it's living. It's not future tense, it's here now. Jesus has made a way now. By a new and living way that he opened for us through that curtain, he entered into the most holy place. What is that curtain? Through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Y'all, there's a new and living way through Jesus, 
See, that curtain that separates you no longer does. And now that Jesus has accomplished what he has, you have full and complete access to God. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you get this, it changes everything. Y'all, the job of the priests was to go in on your behalf. That's what Jesus did. You see, I, I tell you this a lot. The reason why it's an affront to the gospel to say that you can get to heaven any other way is because if there was any other way, then Jesus' way would be unnecessary. Imagine what you say to God in that moment when you say, I'm a good person. God's like, listen, bro, you don't have to be a good person because I was good for you. Like a good father, I'll cover you. All you have to do is receive what I already did. I made the sacrifice. I became perfect so that you wouldn't have to. So now forever and ever and ever, the way that I see, as I see you and your goodness, I see his imputed, if you will, received righteousness given to you. And that changes the way you live now. I, I don't know about you, but whenever I was growing up, I was taught, hey, one day you're gonna die and go to heaven and you're gonna be good. But nobody ever told me you can actually, you can actually live differently now. And after, I don't know, 16, 17 years, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but after that many years of being a Christian, here's what I can tell you. My life is so much more joyful than it would have ever been without Jesus. And I don't have to die and wait till I go to heaven to enjoy this life. It's, a, it's an identity shift. It's an, it, is, it is a taking for granted the things and the gifts that God has given me that I don't do anymore. You can go directly to God and you can receive a new identity in him. You know what that does? It takes a lot of that weight off the cup, doesn't it? See, you don't have to wonder how God feels about you anymore. He's proven his love by the cross and his power by the resurrection. Here's one of the things that I repeat to myself often is, there's nothing I could ever do to make God love me anymore. He can't love me any more than he already does. And there's nothing I could ever do to make God love me any less. You realize that, because why? Because it's not dependent upon what I do, but on what he did. He has given me his full affections. You can forgive yourself, because he forgave you. You see that? He's not sitting up in heaven ready to smite you every time that you mess up. I don't, I don't know about you, but let me just tell you, when, when I mess up big time, here's what I often do. I often pray like the sinner's prayer again. God, I, would you forgive me? Would you, would you please, Lord, like I know I messed up again, but I, would you forgive me because I just want to be in your presence? Let me just tell you, that is bad theology. You know what God's probably sitting up in heaven saying? I already forgave you. Why are you walking back into the bondage that I paid for? Like a good father. And if, if you're a dad, you get this. When your kids mess up royally, you don't stiff arm them. You bring them in. You, you realize that's what God does with you too. You know how that changes you? When, I, when my kids don't have to fear the rejection of their father, no matter what they do, they don't take advantage of that. They draw closer to me. God, we got this thing all twisted. That you think that fear is a great tactic. It's not. Love is the greatest tactic of all. Love your children abundantly, and they're not gonna walk away from you. They're gonna draw closer to you. That's what God does for you too. That's what it's all about. It's a new and living way that lets you walk out of your shame. And let me just tell you what shame does. Shame's like carrying that cup for a long period of time that continues to weigh you down. I just have, I got this sense in my spirit, if you will. I don't know what that means to you, but some of you are walking with some deep, deep shame. Like deep shame. 
Like intellectually, you understand the gospel, but you haven't taken it from here to here. How do I know that? Because that's how I lived for so long, functional religiosity. Like I just didn't get it. I didn't get the fact that I am a beloved child. You could tell me that all day long, but I didn't receive that in such a way that told me, you know, you know that stuff you did in your life? God's not holding you guilty for that stuff anymore because he nailed it to the cross with his son, Jesus Christ. And if you'd received that, he's not telling you that one day you're gonna be perfected in him. He's telling you you can be a new creation now. And you can live into the identity that he has now. So if you're holding, if that's you, I'm not going to embarrass you. You don't have to stand up or anything. But I, I, like, I want you to release that shame. I want you to receive the gift that God has given to you. Once you embrace that, it changes everything. So here, here's what the writer of Hebrews is going to do. is He's going to give you a couple, three specific ways that you can live into this new identity that flows out of a life that's filled with Jesus. So let me, draw, let me show you them really quickly. It's number one is draw near to God. First thing is draw near to God. Look at it in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Mm, I'm telling you, Drawing near to God is such a wellspring of life. If you will learn to do it and discipline yourself to do it, it will change everything. Think about it. He's already told you that you have the ability to draw near to God because of what Jesus did. It's not about ability. It's really, in most of our lives, it's about discipline. It's about creating the categories necessary to do it. So I'm going to give you a couple of them, a couple quick, easy, practical ways to draw near to God. First one's prayer. Prayer. Like there's nothing like talking to God. The problem, the problem is most of us feel like we don't have the time or the margin to talk to God. But let me just tell you, that's not the problem. That's not the problem at all. The problem is, is we don't have the habit or the discipline of doing it. How do I know that? The average American spends seven hours a day on screen time. That's the average American. Spend seven hours a day on screen time. And here's what I know. It's not because we're intentional about it. We're not intentional about grabbing our phone and saying, man, I gotta get three hours on TikTok today watching endless reels of stupid things. Like yesterday, I sat down with my son and I swear we watched 46 lions kill some gazelles. And by the time we're done, I'm like, where did the time go? But we're just watching it. Ooh, that one. And gazelle's walking up to the water and Elliot's like, crocodile. That one's gonna be a crocodile. And you get sucked into this vortex of doing it. But it's like muscle memory, okay? Muscle memory. I, I spent years and years and years throwing thousands of footballs a day. And right now, I can pick up a ball and I can pretty much throw a football every time. Muscle memory. Ma Malcolm Gladwell talked about this, the 10,000 hours of achieving a habit that you get excellent at something after multiple repetitions of doing the same exact thing. So if you're going to be on TikTok every day, guess what's going to happen? The muscle memory of being on TikTok is going to just develop over time, and that's what you're going to get good at. The reality is, is if we would get good at building up our prayer muscle, we would actually pray more. So here's, here's a quick, easy way of doing that. It's been helpful for me. Take your phone charger out of your bedroom and put it somewhere else in the house. Maybe it's in your master bathroom. Maybe it's in your kitchen. Why do that? 
because your phone is the very last thing you look at at night and the very first thing you look at in the morning. If you will remove it from your bedroom, watch this, you will have to get up and get out there and you'll have to put it to bed and wake it up in the morning. Here's my argument. What if you took the two minutes and replaced grabbing your phone with praying as you go get your phone? And some of you are like, ah, what about an alarm clock? Everybody I know has got a smartwatch. Your watch has an alarm clock on it, right? You, know, you, just, you can figure out, go buy a dumb clock. Go put an analog phone or alarm clock in your room. Do, do whatever you gotta do necessary. But if you will do that, I'm telling you, it will force the habit of doing that and it will revolutionize your life. And then look, prayer, easy prayer guide. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Acknowledge who God is, that's our Father. Just take a second, acknowledge who he is. Ask him to do his will in your life, in this church, and in this world, and then confess whatever you need to confess and ask him to protect you today. Simple, easy prayer. Every single day, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, you don't have to pray long-winded prayers, just pray simple prayers all the time and repeatedly. It is simple, and I promise you, if you'd start exercising that muscle and draw near to God, it will revolutionize your life. Here's the next one, community. Community. The truth is, is we were designed to be communal beings, and in our Western culture, we're missing out on so much of the rich, richness that is taught by the gospel. Look at verse 22 again. What does it say? Let us, let us, it's communal language. Did you know if you actually did a study of two of the characters in the Bible, take Samson and David, Samson and David in the Bible had very similar lives. They're both privileged people. They both had the ability to be royalty. They both made their way up to the ranks and they both had a major, major sinful downfall. You know what the difference between Samson and David is? Samson's downfall destroyed his life. David's, David's downfall did not. Why? Because David had a friend. David had a friend named Nathan who had the ability and the proximity to actually call him out in life. He lived in community. See, the reality is, is that's what friendship is, by the way. Friendship is having people in your life who have the proximity and the authority to speak into your life. And I wanna argue with you that most of you don't have friends. You have lots of acquaintances, but you don't have people who are close enough to you to see what's going on and have the authority to say, hey, bro, the way you just talked to your wife doesn't sound very good. You know how I know that? Most people, whenever they make big decisions, come to me and I'm like, who'd you talk to about that? My mentor in California. Your mentor in California does not have the proximity to actually speak into your everyday moments of life. Do you have real friends? Do you have people who have a view a voice, and a vote into your life. A lot of people have a view. Some people have a voice. But do you have anybody in your life that actually has a vote that says, man, I don't think you should take that job? Like, I know you think that's a great opportunity. You're gonna get a big raise here, but you're gonna uproot your family and you're gonna be in a different place that you're not gonna have accountability in your life. And I'm just telling you, living a life with no accountability always leads to bad things. Told you, I, I love the Discovery Channel. The one thing I've noticed about the Discovery Channel is the buffalo that always gets eaten is that brother that's hanging out alone by himself. Always. Do you know when Satan attacks? When you're by yourself. And he's not stupid. It's not like he makes you lonely. No, he gives you great opportunities that put you in isolation. Do you have friends? Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one. Because if, or because they have a good reward for their toil, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. 
God has designed us to carry the weight of life together. Here's the next one, church. Church. Yo, Christianity is a team sport, and I don't care what anybody tells you, because here's the argument I get. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Listen, that's true. You also don't have to go home, or you also don't have to go home to be married. Try that out. Let me know how it goes. Right? That's how this thing works. If you want to have healthy relationships, Jesus called the church his bride. Which, y'all, I'm just telling you, we love to bash the church. And some of it's for good reasons, but I don't know about you. I just don't want to get caught up bashing Jesus' bride. I think he loves her. He died for her. He called us to be a part of this thing, and it's the only thing in life, it's the only institution that he promises he will build and bless. So if I were you, I'd just want to be on the side of the church. Like, there's all kinds of reasons not to want to go to church, and I get that. Sometimes it's the institution of church that frustrates us. Somebody made a decision that you didn't agree with, and they really hurt you, and they disappointed you, and I get that. I get it. It makes sense. I've been disappointed by some of the decisions I've made. Some people call me, like, call us all hypocrites. Like, I don't want to go to church. I heard this the other day. It's just filled with hypocrites. Yes, it is. And if you come, you can join us. I mean, what do you want? Like, of course we're hypocrites. We're all trying to live this thing together. Take the pressure off yourself a little bit, y'all. You're trying to work this thing out. Honestly, there's a lot of things competing for your time, and they're good things. A lot of you guys have sports going on, and I'm not knocking that. There's few things that I love and enjoy more than watching my kids play sports. I love it. Yesterday, my son, we won his playoff game in double overtime, and I was pumped. I love the people that I get to do sports with. I love watching them excel. I love the community that's built around those things. Others, if you like to go on vacations and experience things as a family, and that stuff's super fun. But at the same time, there is something about being in the room that just matters. Like there's something about worshiping together and serving together and loving one another that matters. One of the greatest lessons I've ever been taught, a boss of mine, back in the day, he he came up to me and said, Billy, listen, here's what you need to understand. Not everything under heaven has your name on it. And if you really want to follow the Lord, you're going to have to choose between some good things and God things. It's not normally between good things and bad things that you're choosing between, but you're going to have to say no to some things in order to say yes to some other things. And I'm telling you, for most of us, we need to do that because there's endless opportunities for all of us in this room. And the question we need to ask is, what's the most important thing that I'm going to give my life to? You will never, ever regret giving your life to the church. Now, let me just speak to men real quick, because I think sometimes the men in this room get told some things that that God didn't tell you. You you realize God told you as a man to go create and cultivate. Like, he gave you permission to go build something beautiful. I love that. I'm a builder. Men, is there anything more worthwhile than building a legacy for your kids to fall in love with Jesus? Or to tell your kids and your grandkids that you're building a foundation of commitment to this thing called the local church. Because here's what they're gonna do. They're gonna model what their daddy modeled for them. They are. Like when they grow up, they're gonna prioritize the things that they saw you prioritize. And I'm telling you, you're gonna want them to prioritize Jesus and his church. So what our kids do, oftentimes, is a reflection of what we do. By the grace of God, maybe some of our mess ups, they won't. One of the best ways to draw near to God is through corporate worship in the local church. 
It's when we're together, when we're carrying the weight of things together. It's the only institution on earth that Jesus promised to bless. And it's when we gather together. I love it. Louis Giglio said this yesterday in a podcast I was listening to, and it's just unbelievably good. He said, we need to stop coming to church to worship, and we need to start worshiping on our way to church. Like, you don't come to church to worship, you worship to church. And when we come worship full to church, we actually experience God together. Number four, and here's the next one, generosity. You want to draw close to God? Be generous. I mean, think about it. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And this is just pragmatic stuff. What you invest your time, your talent, and your treasures into are the things that you're going to be the most invested in, <laughs> right? So if you're invested in this place, you know what you're going to do? You're going to make really darn sure that this place is walking with Jesus. You, you're going to invite people into it. If you want to draw close to God and his kingdom, you and your heart need to be knit to the things of his kingdom. So invest there. Number five, next one is Bible reading. I, I talk about this one all the time, Bible reading. Listen, but the Bible is God's spoken word to you. If you want to know the God of the Bible, you need to know the Bible, right? You want to know the God of the word, know the word of God. It's how he related to us. It's how he reveals himself to us. You know, the person who hung the stars in the sky wrote a book and he gave it to you. And he's preserved it over 2,000 years for you, longer than that if you take the Old Testament. He's preserved this thing. There's been people who have tried to demolish this thing forever and they can't, and it's yours. It's just practically speaking. The Bible reading app, it's literally called the reading app. Download that. No, it's called reading plan app. Download that on your phone. It's amazing. It has different Bible reading plans. Read that. Or download the Bible app on your phone and start in the Gospels and just read it. Matter of fact, if this is you and you're not, I don't read. That's okay. It will read it to you. And that's okay because for the first several hundred years, the Bible was spoken audibly. It's okay to have an oratory version of that. Just get the word of God in you however you do it. Real quickly, back to the text. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to God because, watch this, watch it, because your hearts are clean and your body is washed. See what that means? You're pure. You don't have shame anymore. When I go to the Middle East, I always ask my Muslim friends, I say, how can you wash your heart? Like when they go into worship, you know, they go to this washing pool and they wash the outside of their body to cleanse themselves. And I'm like, that's all fine. How do you clean your heart? The answer is Jesus. Now, I think the number one reason why many of us start, draw away from God is our shame. But here's what he's saying. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. Number one reason why we don't engage in community is because we're going to be found out that we're a fraud. I told you this before, the, 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 the number one fear of every man underneath all this stuff is that one day you're going to find out that they're a fraud. Let me just tell you, they're a fraud. Like, let's just get that out in the open. Put it out there. Put it on a shelf. Now, let me tell you, God doesn't, God doesn't look at your shame anymore. You're clean. You're pure. You're fully known and fully accepted by God. So here's number two. Speed this thing up. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. See it again? I'm not, I'm not very creative here. It's right in the text. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The, the, the simplicity of this, if you want to make it in this world, don't give up. Hold fast. 
I remember when I ran my first marathon. I, I ran it in New York, and um, at about mile 17, something starts happening to your body. Like, it's, it's indescribable, the pain that you feel. Like, my legs just stop working. It's jello. And I remember sitting there at mile 17, ready to give up. I was done. I'm like, I got like 40 more miles to go. There's no way I'm finishing this thing. And the thought that came into my head was, there's no way I'm going back home and telling my children that I quit. So what did I do? I picked a point about 100 yards ahead of me and said, just run to that point. And then I picked another point and just run to that point. Life is a marathon, y'all. I'm telling you, when it hits you, you got to pick a point. You can't get to the whole thing. Just get to the next thing, into the next thing, into the next thing. And you hold fast. What do you hold fast to? You see it here? It's in here. He who promised is faithful. That's what you hold fast to, the faithfulness of God. You hold fast to the faithfulness that he's going to fix this world, that he's going to be in the middle of your battle with you, that he is faithful to do exactly what he told you he's going to do. And what he's going to do is he's going to put evil to rest one day. Listen to Matthew 11. Let this just soak over you for a second. Come to me. This is Jesus. Come, listen to the invitation. All who labor and are heavy laden. By the way, that's probably all of you. Watch it, and I will give you rest. That's your point. Take my yoke. You know what a yoke is? I was always confused by this. It's not like the little thing in the middle of the egg. It's the thing that goes around the bull. Now watch this. Every yoke in agrarian societies had two harnesses because synergistically, two can carry way more weight than one. So you'd put the bull underneath one and you put the bull underneath the other. Watch what Jesus is saying. I'm going to go under one and so are you. I'm not going to carry it for you. I'm going to carry it with you. Ah, uh, you see that? And watch this. He's going to take the weight of that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'll walk this life with you. For why? For I am gentle and lowly. Lowly means humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You want to find rest for your souls, that deeper rest, that contentment rest? It's not that Jesus is going to tell you he's going to do it all. He's like, I'm going to walk with you in this life. I'm going to walk with you day by day. I'm going to do it with you. Like, it's amazing. It's, it's found in walking on daily dependence with the Savior. It's taking the next point and the next point. It's not carrying the water by yourself. It's actually saying, I'm going to carry it with you. That does it. Number three, let us stir up one another. See at verse 24, the third let us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meat together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another. Can I just say this? This isn't even in my notes, but going to church is a habit. See it? As it is the habit of some to not do that. It's a habit. You got to exercise that muscle. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. You know what's true? There's not a single person in this room that is struggling with over-encouragement. There's not anybody in this room that walked in today and was like, oh, if somebody else is kind to me and says another compliment to me, I'm just going to throw up. Most of us deal with under-encouragement. Most of us don't ever get encouraged. Nobody is coming into this room and saying, man, I'm so glad to see you. 
Like just being in your presence has made my day better. Chris, I felt that way about you today. It made me smile to walk in the room and give you a hug today. It makes my day better because I know that I'm not alone. That's why church is so important. See, people live into the encouragement that you give them. Let me say it in a pithy way. People replicate what you celebrate. If you celebrate the goodness of God in their lives, they're going to live into that reality. It's called positive reinforcement. By the way, that word stir up there, it's a unique word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. In the first way, it's when Paul and Barnabas are fighting with one another about what to do with John Mark in the book of Acts. It's to stir up or to provoke. In the positive way, listen to this. What is he saying? You need to provoke love in one another. You got to fight for it. You got to push into it. That's what he's saying. He's saying love is provoked like poking a fire. When you encourage one another, you poke the fire or you stir up in one another love and good works. See, the only way that's possible, though, is when we're together. You see it? Don't neglect to meet together. Why? Because you're not struggling with over-encouragement. You're struggling with a world that is beating you up. Like Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Right? That's what's happening. You walk through this world getting punched in the face, and one day a week we say, let's come together and love one another. See it? Two things, the writer says. What are we stirring up? Love and good works. Now let's talk about both of those. Let's talk about love for a second. Culture would tell you that love is an emotion that you do to make you feel good, and you do whatever you want to do to feel love. Problem is, that's not what love is. Love is not an emotion. Love's a person. First John 4, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, watch, God is love. See it? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. See, love is when you live through Christ or he lives in you. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but God has loved us and he sent his son. It's a propitiation, which is a big word that means he switched places with us. He sacrificed himself for us, a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Meaning this, you ought to act like Jesus acted. You ought to sacrifice for one another. And then he says, no one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here it is. How do people see God? Through you. So what image of God do they see? If you love one another, if you do these things, people are going to see the gospel through the way that you live so that whenever they get to hear from Jesus, they get to receive the propitiation that he says. So stir up love. Stir it up in one another. Bring it out of one another, right? Provoke it in one another. What does that look like? Three things. Encourage each other to serve sacrificially, love without limits, and give generously. Those three things. That's what provokes love. See, why? Because none of us are naturally bent to do these things. You, you get that, right? I told you last week. The three things that take down every person since the beginning of sin is this, money, sex, and power. Those three things will get you every time. 
They're the downfall of most humanity. But listen, if you serve sacrificially, what you're not gonna have is a whole lot of power. You're, you're sacrificing your power. If you love without limits, what you're not gonna have is a whole lot of sex outside of the confines of biblical marriage, right? And if you give generously, you're not gonna be tied to your money. See, all these things are to release your heart so that you can actually experience the joy that's tied to running this race well. Again, back to that marathon. At the end of that marathon, and I stood at the, as I was going to the finish line, something happened. Those weak knees, as I saw the crowds begin to build and the cheering. Oh, I'm telling you, as the finish line got nearer, I got this adrenaline rush, right? The endorphins started flowing and it pushed me through. That's what we're supposed to do to one another. We build up in this as we're struggling and we pat each other on the back and say, bro, you can do this. Keep going. When we celebrate each other's wins, when we simply have the ministry of presence to sit next to one another, we communicate a value. When we serve together, we communicate a value that nothing in this world can do. So let me just end today by telling you, so I talked about love, tell you the good work that actually our elder team has been praying for for the last six months that we believe at City Church, real practically, for the next season of our life is a good work that we want to invest in, okay? We can't think of a better way to stir up good works as a church than to pass on the faith that we have to the next generation. As a matter of fact, I'd say that it's somewhat Christian malpractice that we take the gospel in and we don't give it away. No matter, it's a stewardship issue, or better yet, it's a stewardship opportunity. So what we wanna do is we wanna say the good work that God has given us is to invest as a church in the next generation. Did you know, I, I did some stats on this recently, that there are over 10,000 middle schoolers within reach of this church and over 22,000 high schoolers within reach of this church. Matter of fact, in Metro Atlanta alone, there are 260,000 Gen Zs. And if you didn't know this, because, you know, the next generation always likes to make fun of the one previous, and I'm, I'm a millennial, so I've received a lot of that, right? We were the generation that received the trophies, and we get made fun of that for that, but you Gen Xers realize that you're the ones that gave us the trophies, but that's a conversation for another time. Sociologists will tell you that Gen Zs are the most spiritually open generation in American history. They're begging for the gospel. They want to live into it. Are we giving it to them? See, we have about 15 middle schools and high schools within our proximity. And there are, I'm sorry, we have about 15 middle schoolers and high schoolers that actually attend here. And there are dozens more that are ready to come up into the wings. Y'all, did you know that most of the time, statistically speaking, kids come to faith? People, human, humans come to faith within the earliest years of their life between the age of 12 and 16. And by the way, statistically speaking, by the age of 20, 19 to 20, they leave the church in droves. Something is going wrong. Barna Research says that the average, teacher, the average teenager today is exposed to more than 3,000 hours a year of formative context into their lives. And of that, only 150 hours of explicit Christian context in that same time frame. 
Y'all, there's a real war being waged over the souls of our young people and the next generation is being shaped by our intentionality. What are we giving them? What are we giving them? Like, we don't have that much time with these little ones. You get that, right? We're squeezing in in this whole thing called life, and they're already having, on average, seven hours of screen time. And I'm telling you, that's average humans. Your kids are probably getting way more than that. And there's thousands of hours of media that are trying to vie for your kids' attention and shape their worldview. Oh, we're competing with school, where most of your kids are going to school for most of the week. And the church only has one hour a week to shape the lives of our kids. And listen, Listen, I'm telling you, in those couple hours, we have to be intentional. So we want to be intentional by pouring into you to disciple your kids because you're the greatest disciple maker of your kids, not us, okay? But we also want to be intentional about doing some great things and leveraging the resources that we have to pour into that. So here's what I want to do is I want to challenge you to fund the future of this. In the next two weeks, in the next two weeks, we're going to give you a commitment card and ask you to go above and beyond your actual giving right now at City Church to help us launch a middle school and a high school ministry at City Church in 2024. We're gonna, that's gonna include helping build out a space here back in the back. That's gonna help us include trying to hire somebody that's going to give some time and attention to that and to cultivate um, events and experiences so that your students in middle school and high school can have the opportunity to hear the gospel and their friends can hear the gospel in an age-appropriate way. Now, some of you, some of you in this room, maybe you're on the latter end of things and you need to start thinking about a legacy. I can't think of a better legacy for you than to invest yourself monetarily into something that's going to impact the future in eternal ways. Paul Tripp said it like this. No one in eternity will regret the sacrifices they made to follow Jesus. Just the other day, I was driving to school with Emma, my t- almost 10 year And we we're talking about the gospel. I pray with him. We talk about Jesus all, every day on our way to school. And, um, and she asked me, she said, Daddy, when can I get baptized? Y'all about lost it. Like, I was holding back tears. I've been praying for that for the last 10 years for her. Don't you want that for every single kid in this church and every single kid in this city and every single kid in this world? That's what I want. I think God has given us a mandate to steward the children of this world in a different kind of way. Look at Psalm 127. Look at what it says. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemy at the gates. You know what warriors do with arrows in their hands? They shoot them into the heart of the enemy. See what God calls your children? Warriors, your children are arrows. Your job as a parent is to build up your children in such a way that you shoot them out of your home by the grace of God, they get off your payroll and they go into the heart of the enemy. Like, I don't know about you, but I want to invest in the discipleship of our children and our students. And I wanna come alongside of them, invest in you, so that one day, whenever they get shot off into this crazy world, they're equipped with the gospel. I can't think of a better work than that, City Church. So I wanna encourage you. 
I want to encourage you as you're part of our church to be a part of the future of our church. I want to challenge you to invest here, to serve here, to give here, to build here. Why? Because the day is drawing near. That's what he says. But encourage one another all the more as you see the day draw near. That word day, it's referring to a period of time that's drawing closer to the end when Jesus comes. I love this. The writer says, as you see, they saw it. See, for them, they could see it. They saw the chaos going on in Rome. They knew that that at this point, the temple is going to be destroyed in AD 70 and all of their life is going to come into chaos and the day is drawing near. They, They could see it. They could feel it in their bones and they were right. And you can see it too. Can you not? There's wars going on in countries. There's wars going on in culture. You know, there's wars going on for your kids' hearts. People are telling your kids that what's right is wrong and right, wrong is right. And what they need to see and what you need to see as the day is drawing near is to be encouraged that the gospel still works. It still works. And God knows what he's doing. See, I don't know about you, but every year, I feel like my life goes faster and faster and faster. Matter of fact, psychologists will tell you that when you're young, you measure time by milestones. So your next time frame would be Christmas and, and you get anxious about it. Like, like if you ever go on a, a trip that you're anticipating, like you're about to go to Europe, if you ever go on that trip that you're anticipating, as the day gets closer, the anticipation grows. And then as it grows, it feels like it takes forever to get there, right? That's what kids do. That's why time goes so slow. But as adults, you don't do that anymore. So the time speeds up. So like when I blink my eyes, I can remember holding my 10-year-old daughter for the very first time. And now I look at her, she's talking back to me. I'm like, what happened? And then Jim reminds me, it's not gonna be long until she's married and she's having her own kids. The day is drawing near. Time is limited. I had lunch with a friend of mine just this week. He's 90. And we're sitting down together and we just went on a trip to London a couple years back and and he, he's getting to the end, and he knows that. He knows the day is drawing near. And he says, Billy, do you know what I love about our relationship more than anything? He goes, I remember this moment in London when we're sitting down in the hotel room and your daughter Emma called you, and you're FaceTiming her, and she's talking about how much she missed you, and she, she just wanted you to sing her songs for bedtime. And as he's saying that, just be honest, confession time, I don't even remember. And he says, don't miss the moments. Because as a 90-year-old man coming to the finish line, here's what I know is that those moments matter so much. And that moment had an impression on my heart. You only have so many moments with these kids, these little ones. And I know middle schoolers, high schoolers, they're not quite that little anymore. And that day is drawing near. Every day is getting closer and closer and closer. I just want to challenge you. I'm going to give you more information on this in the next couple weeks. So I want you to hold tight. I'm not gonna give you the specifics on that yet, but I wanna challenge you to start praying through what would it look like for us to invest in the next generation here? Let me pray for you. Father, that day that draws near, my heart is I don't want it to draw near without anybody in this room or any of their children knowing you as savior. You've torn the veil, you've given us life. And we just say thank you for that. So God, would you give us a vision for your future and help us to invest our time, our talent, and our resources into your vision for this church. In Jesus' name.